They're in an emergency right now and are asking for help because it's all gone. Most farms are asking for support getting just the most basic supplies, at least cooking pots, so they can face a situation that's tough enough already because of COVID-19. Patricia Guilinga is an indigenous leader in Ecuador. Her community fled to the Amazon to avoid the coronavirus, only to be slammed with another disaster that wiped out their way of life. Today, we're telling a story about what happens when an environmental crisis and a health crisis are stacked on top of one another. And it's affecting one of the most vulnerable populations in one of the most vulnerable regions on Earth. I'm Kevin Hurton, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. There are about one million indigenous people in Ecuador. About a quarter of them live in the Amazon, and those numbers are going up, as the pandemic has caused many to seek refuge in their ancestral homes. You see, life in the rainforest can be arduous, but at least it's isolated. That makes it safer, at least in theory, than Ecuador's cities, which have been ravaged by COVID-19. Numbers have been increasing, unfortunately, in the city, but I think there's a lot more concern about the economic situation, and people really wanted to get back to work. Kim Brown is a freelance journalist in Ecuador's capital, Quito. She's written a lot of articles for Al Jazeera about indigenous communities there, but recently she's been reporting on coronavirus as well. The country's been among the hardest hit in the Americas. On the deserted streets of Guayaquil, a body left discarded on the sidewalk. The country's been among the worst hit by the coronavirus in Latin America, and Guayaquil, its largest city, is at the epicenter. With vast levels of inequality and little investment in public health, the fear in this region now is that Guayaquil may only be the beginning. So it really blew up at the end of March, this story, because photos started appearing on social media showing dead bodies in the streets or on park benches, and it really gave the sense that people were falling down, dying all over the place. It's the odor from the body that we can't handle anymore. There are also elderly neighbors, and I have my mother who is 80 and having respiratory problems. People were dying in homes, and there weren't enough authorities to reach those homes fast enough. And so out of fear of contagion and also because of the smell, people were putting their family who had just passed away out onto the street and kind of away from where they had to live on a daily basis. The health crisis in Guayaquil peaked in March and April. For those months, the local government reported 10,000 deaths. With morgues, funeral homes, and cemeteries strained, the government is bringing in containers to temporarily store dead bodies. That's two and a half times the normal number, but it didn't attribute any of that to the coronavirus. Many residents feel the government has been lying to them. It really raised a lot of alarm bells for people, like what is happening? How are these deaths happening? Why is nothing being reported? And it really created a situation of chaos and confusion. At the height of the crisis in Guayaquil, it was really getting international attention. Did you do any specific reporting where you talked to families and victims of the virus? 
I worked in a few stories about Guayaquil. Yes, I spoke to some families and people with really dire situations, not even necessarily around losing people to the coronavirus. But for example, I spoke to one woman. She went in to take her mother to her weekly dialysis session, but the hospital wouldn't let her in because she had the sniffles and they couldn't risk it potentially being the coronavirus. And so therefore she couldn't get in for her dialysis, which ended up being deadly and she passed away. And so that's just an example of like these the hospital who also didn't know what they were doing necessarily, who were taking these extreme measures causing uh, undue deaths. I spoke to other people who have lost up to three or four family members. Another woman told me that not one day goes by without her getting a call that a friend's dad passed away, someone's grandma passed away, someone's husband passed away. So it's, yeah, there, there's those stories are quite common in Guayaquil. So things are really bad in Guayaquil, in Quito too. So it's no wonder thousands of indigenous people chose to leave the cities. And to hear Kim describe it, journeying into the Amazon from Quito, it feels like you're traveling to a different world. So you're going from Quito, which is in the Andes Mountains, to the Amazon state of Pastaza, the capital city, which is Puyo. And so you're going through a few different kind of climates to get there. You're going from the cold Andes Mountains to the more jungle, tropical, humid climate when you get to Puyo. And from there you would take a small charter plane. In this case, these are small planes that fit maybe three to five people. And then you go into the Amazon about half an hour and you know you cross this like lush, lush rainforest. If you look down, all you see are rivers and trees. There are no roads that lead into this territory. And so you get there on this small landing strip and you're literally in the middle of the jungle in this hot, humid climate, which is totally different from, from the cities. We now know that rainforest isolation alone was not going to keep the coronavirus at bay. More than 2,000 indigenous Ecuadorians have been exposed to the virus so far, and that's despite the many precautions they took. Kim interviewed two indigenous leaders about that in March. There's Patricia Guadalinga from the Quechua community. We heard from her at the start of the episode, and we'll hear from her again soon. And then there's Namante Nenkimo. She's from the Wairani community. So, Nemonte, she's a Waurani leader, and I spoke to her from the town of Shell, which is just outside of the Amazon city of Puyo. She had decided to stay in this town instead of going back to her community because she didn't want to risk bringing the virus to her community. I wonder, is there a shared sense of memory about the idea of disease and pandemics? I mean, I think for a lot of the world... This was an abstraction before March, but for indigenous communities, do they still carry that scar with them? Yeah, I'd say definitely they still carry that with them. You know, she has memories of yellow fever, cholera, the flu that wiped out large populations. When I was speaking with Nemonte, she was telling me how when the virus first came to Ecuador, the first confirmed case was in Guayaquil. And now that's very far from the Amazon, but even it being in the country, became a concern for her. And for a lot of the people in the Waurani community, she was saying, Many times I heard people say, how could this disease come here? It's in China. It's in another country, another world, so far away. 
But then it did come. When we first heard that coronavirus was here in Guayaquil, the Waorani people were very worried and started retreating to the territory. And even other indigenous leaders told me that during colonization in the 17th century, as much as 90% of the indigenous population of, of all of the Americas uh, was wiped out when colonizers came from Europe and brought things like the flu and measles. So yeah, I think this is definitely something that weighs very heavily on, on the indigenous population. Outsiders have posed a threat to indigenous populations in more recent times as well. Leaders of the Wairani community, which Namonte is part of, say that half the population died in the 1950s as oil companies pushed deeper into the rainforest. Namonte says that even with the coronavirus pandemic ongoing, energy companies are doing the same thing today. I am worried that I'm hearing on social media and also through the grapevine that companies are working in the Amazon like normal. Employees from Quito, Cuenca, Guayaquil continue working in violation of the government order, not respecting the town where we live, I've heard, where many grandparents live, and that is worrying. No one from the Waorani community is traveling. The only people entering and leaving the territory are energy sector employees. That is very, very troubling. You can hear the concern in her voice. This is why Namante was so careful to stay away from her community, to avoid taking any chances with the health of her loved ones. Can you talk about how much that weighed on her? Yeah, she was extremely upset about it, mainly because she has a daughter um, who I believe is around two years old. And she, her daughter was in her territory with her grandparents. I miss my daughter very much. I haven't seen my daughter in about a month. And so Nemonte's decision to not go back to her community, to not risk the elders' lives there, and to not risk other people's lives in her community, also forced this distance with her daughter. And I mean, of course, there's no danger. She's in a very safe space. But I think for a mother, that's a very hard decision to have to make. Many of the Waorani are grandparents who have suffered from pneumonia, from simple illnesses. And now this is a bacterium. It can kill grandparents. We have to prevent and care. And we did that very quickly. That's one of the worst aspects of this coronavirus. It separates loved ones. And that separation doesn't even guarantee their safety. Around 300 members of the Wairani community have come down with COVID-19. Namonte's sister is one of them. The worst hit indigenous group is the Quechua. That's Patricia Gwilinga's community. They've had about 700 cases. And the pandemic is just one of the crises they're struggling with this year. While the Quechua were all gathered in their town of Sariaku in March to avoid this health crisis, they got hit with an environmental crisis. Patricia was helpless. She had to watch the whole thing from afar. So Patricia actually ended up staying away from her community for, for there was issues with transportation, which is why she couldn't travel back to Sarayaku um, right away. And as it turned out, that very week where she was having these transportation problems, there were massive rains near her community in the rainforest, which turned into massive flooding. It was a bigger river flood than we'd ever seen before, 15 meters high which destroyed many homes, destroyed bridges, destroyed community crops, and left up to three to 4,000 people under these circumstances of not having ways to provide for themselves that they would traditionally rely on. 
In the previous century, with diseases like smallpox, measles, or yellow fever, people ran away and went into the mountains to flee the disease. I think this has become a custom in some way, and so people return to the communities to flee this virus as well. But obviously, we didn't plan for this natural disaster, the likes of which we've never seen. So how did they respond to the floods? I mean, what do you do when all this happens and you have no other options? Well, they did the best they can. They traveled to neighboring communities. They put calls out for help. I think eventually the government did get out there with boats and with aid for food. Um, Another complication with the dynamics of the coronavirus lockdown is that normally activists and people who support indigenous communities, they would normally rally and collect donations to be able to bring out to these territories. But that was, of course, stunted because everyone's in lockdown. And at the very beginning, everyone was scared of disobeying lockdown and what that would mean. So they were kind of doubly stuck in that case. But they just they traveled to neighbors and tried to make the best of it. Patricia's community was dealing with a natural disaster. But just a few weeks later, with the coronavirus pandemic still raging, a different Amazonian community was forced to contend with an environmental catastrophe that was anything but natural. I was at the river Coca around 6 a.m., and it was fine. A little later, people started saying, oil is spilling. When we came to check out the situation, the oil has sunk 50 meters deep in the soil. On the surface, the oil stains was about 5 to 6 centimeters thick. At the beginning of April, pipelines burst and actually leaked into the Coca River, which then eventually also reached into the Napo River. Those two rivers are main arteries of the Amazon rainforest. Affecting a huge swath of communities, both indigenous and otherwise, who live along these rivers and destroying the only water source for a lot of people. Do do you know how much oil spilled? I don't think anyone really knows exactly how much oil was spilt. According to the government, there are approximately 4,000 barrels of oil. However, the communities who live along the river who have experienced other oil spills in the past say it was much larger than that, over 15,000 barrels of oil. All these communities, which I think are about 120,000 people, which is what environmentalists are saying, have been affected by this as they live along the river, which is their main life source. They do everything in this river. They use the water for cooking their food, they clean their clothes, they bathe, they use it as drinking water. It really is their main life source. And overnight, this was just all taken away from them. Did they talk about what it was like with the oil? I mean, does it stick to everything? Does it does it kill all the fish? Is there anything left after this? Yeah, I was told of one case where there was a young boy of about 14 years old who wasn't aware of the oil spill and went swimming directly after. And then when he came out, his skin was all red and full of blotches. And people are very concerned about the long-term impact that this is going to have on his health. Other than that, the kind of dangerous thing about this is that it's not something that goes in and kills all the wildlife right away. So you don't see necessarily dead fish laying on the water, but you do know that it gets into that fish's food stream. And so that's another danger of this is that there aren't a whole lot of obvious ways that it's impacting your food source, but you know that if you consume it, it will eventually affect your body. This this is a tough place to live, even the best of times. How tough is it to survive an environmental shock like this? 
the way they deal with it is to try to find smaller streams within the Amazon. And in some cases, that's walking three or four hours to find local clean streams. And so people are able to adapt, but I think knowing that things can change so quickly and they're so powerless against this big monster, it really hits them hard. And to make matters worse, oil engineers had to come into the Amazon to clean up the spills, possibly exposing locals to the virus there. I asked Kim if all that oil made it tougher to combat the disease. One of the things that was an early message for epidemiologists and, and medical experts was to wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Sanitation is such a key to defeating the virus. How do you wash your hands if the water is contaminated? Yeah, washing your hands has been another big issue. I mean, right, when your water is contaminated, you're dependent on walking hours into the forest to try to find clean streams. And then you bring that back and you're expected to use that water for everything, from cooking to washing your clothes to bathing. And so is there enough to wash your hands all the time? I mean, not necessarily. I think right now, given the lockdown situation, it makes these... It, it makes surviving this kind of situation a lot tougher because normally you could have the option of driving to the city and buying things. Um, although the majority of indigenous communities don't have full-time jobs, so buying things isn't exactly an easy option, but it, but it could be an option. Right now, if people are driving into the cities to pick up supplies, they're also risking getting contaminated by this virus and bringing it back to their community. So there are a lot of complications around this. I think, they're very dependent right now on external aid, which no one likes. No one likes being dependent, and especially not now, because that also means inviting outsiders into your communities who could also bring the virus. And to cap it all off, despite all the precautions, all the isolation, the coronavirus has still found its way into Indigenous communities. There are almost 1,500 cases. Kim found these numbers concerning, and she says leaders like Nemante and Patricia hope the world learns from this experience. All of the Indigenous leaders who I spoke to had the same message, and I think Nemonte put it really well that, you know, we've been living in the rainforest for thousands of years. You know, we haven't had any disease, we haven't had any major problems, and um, you keep coming in and exploiting our territory, but I think now is the time to listen to Indigenous people and our methods of conservation and how we take care of the world. And I think you have to listen to, to us and respect our way of living and then model that. Yesterday I went a bit crazy. I started crying and I cried a lot. It hit me hard and it was heavy, I'm telling you. The world, the powerful countries are saving people's lives, not the world itself. They're living for money to invest and destroying the planet. So I think there's very much a sense of stop telling us what to do and start listening to us about how to take care of the world because you're failing at it. And that's The Take. But we're not done with this story. This episode was just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, we have a lot deeper to dig. Because all of the environmental concerns shared by Kim, Nemonte, Patricia... The oil spills, the increased flooding, deforestation, they're all largely caused by one controversial decision that Ecuador's government made in 2007. 
This is Coca-Codo Sinclair, the biggest hydroelectric power plant in Ecuador. This power plant, the biggest in Ecuador, built with Chinese funding and expertise, is often referred to as one of the prime examples of this cooperation between the two countries. Coca-Codo Sinclair is an essential part of Ecuador's plan to increase its production of energy through renewable sources. The Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam project had a lot of promise in the mid-2000s. In part two of this series, we'll explore how that dream fell apart and the massive corruption scandal it left in its wake. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with me, Kevin Hurton, Abigail Oni-Wohacha, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kisba, Malika Bilal, Amy Walters, and Nay Alvarez. Our audio engineer, Alex Roldan, makes us sound good. Natalia Aldana makes sure you hear our hard work. She manages our Twitter and Instagram accounts at AJ The Take. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Sophie Pinchetti, Alexia Underwood, and Melissa Goh. We'll be back. <laughs>